Good morning. It feels like fall, doesn't it? Which is a wonderful thing. Uh, hey, uh, just during worship, worship was great today. Amen. You got lots of good stuff. I, uh, um, sometimes, you know, it depends on where you are in the process, or whatever. I, I just want to take a second. And um, if, uh, if you came this morning and you've got a burden, if uh, you feel like, man, I could use some folks praying for me, um, just real quietly, don't be ashamed about that at all. Would you just stand up and, and I'd like to pray for you. Um, so if you've got some needs, feel free to go ahead and do that. Yeah, good. Um, uh, feel free to stand up when, when we start praying as well. If there's somebody around you, you want to put your hands on them while we pray. If you want to put your hands out towards them, feel free to do that. Let's, let's just pray right now. Um, God, we come to you knowing that you're the one who, uh, who takes everything in life and makes sense of it. Um, God, there are, there are the, for folks who are standing that need prayer, there are things going on in their lives that, that they're just trying to survive or just trying to figure out. And, um, and we ask that you would be with them, that you would um, let them know that you're there. God, we ask that you'd bring wisdom and, um, and, and resolution to the issues that are there. God, for everybody who's, who's seated, we all have our own stuff. And, and Lord, we just invite you right now uh, to come in and take over, to clean out stuff that needs cleaned out, and, um, and to minister in a way that only you can. Um, God, draw us to you and speak to us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, we are in uh, our Colossians series. This is week number four in Colossians chapter three. Uh, it's been a long time since we've uh, spent as much time in one chapter uh, as we have with this, but it's because this chapter is just so good. So um, if you've got your Bibles, take them out. Let me just kind of review. At the beginning of the chapter, we said, because Jesus is preeminent, because he, he is the one who, that makes sense of everything, there's stuff that we got to get rid of, things that we've got to eliminate in our life. That's the beginning of chapter three. Then, uh, then we talked about the, the new clothing that we put on as followers of Christ. There's, there are things that we need to wear, compassion, kindness, patience, um, gentleness, um, love, forgiveness, all those clothes that we need to put on. Last week we talked about, in verse 16 and 17, about the importance of having God's word live in us. Um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Um, as we encourage each other, as we admonish each other, everything that we do, that, that it would be done for Jesus. Um, this section that we're going to look at today, uh, beginning in verse 18, is all about relationships. Um, uh, most all of that stuff that we've looked at so far in chapter 3 is about when Jesus is ruling in our life, it changes us on the inside. And at the end of chapter three, it really, really dives into this concept of, okay, what's that look like in your relationships? Um, how does that impact who you are at home, how, how you act at work? Uh, but what's, what's that look like? Um, and understand that this um, message, that, that this content that comes at the end of Colossians three, it really does challenge our cultural norms. The things that, as a culture, that we value, that we think, oh, no, it needs to be this way, this really speaks to that. So, so listen as God speaks, and then we'll, we'll unpack that. Um, starting in Colossians chapter 3, 
beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, in, in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be, will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. And then verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with, with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Before we, before we dive into that passage and begin to kind of sort through that one verse at a time. Um, there are some foundational concepts that I want us to make sure that we have under our belts uh, before we get there. You build a house, you've got to have a strong foundation, right? When you lay a floor, you've got to have the floor joists there that support the, the, the floor. Um, here are some concepts before we really begin to unpack those scriptures that I want to just make sure that we're all kind of on the same page. The first is this. When God is your desire, you can trust his design. Does that sound familiar to anyone vaguely? Last, last November, we did a, seri on, a series on God's design, and for four weeks, we just talked over and over about that. When God is your desire, you can trust his design. We talked about God's design for men, God's design for women, God's design for marriage, God's design for singleness. When we talked about God's design for men, we said that God's design for men is that they would be engaged, intentional, and responsible. Engaged, intentional, and responsible. When we talked about God's design for women, we said that, that God's design for women is that they be collaborative. There's that helper concept that they would be compassionate and that they would be filled with trust in God. We're going to come back to that a little bit uh, later in the message, but, uh, but that's a, a foundational piece. When God is our desire, um, we can trust his design. Second, the second uh, floor joist, if you will, for that is this. Our relationship with Jesus determines our relationship with others. Our relationship with Jesus, it determines, it defines our relationships with others. This is not something that's negotiable. You can't say, oh, I've got a relationship with Jesus and then have carnage in all your relationships. That's not the way that works. We'll see that fleshed out. We can't really know and love Jesus without it impacting the people who are in our lives. Um, your faith, hear me in this, your faith doesn't mean much if you can't live it out at home, if you can't live it out with the people that you work with. If it doesn't show there, it's not faith, it's just a philosophy. It's a worldview, how, how you view life. But if it's not impacting those relationships that are closest to you, um, we're, we're missing something. It doesn't have value. Um, if God's word is dwelling in us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's going to affect how we treat our spouse, how we treat our kids, how we treat our roommates, how we treat our coworkers, how we treat our boss. How we, how we treat the people who work with us and the people who work for us. That's what Paul is saying in, in this uh, section of his letter to the church in, in Colossae. Um, 
what, uh, just so you know, when we get a little bit further in the message and the scripture comes up one at a time, uh, what I've done is outline through this passage of scripture every reference there is about how your relationship is defined by your relationship with God. I'm not going to talk much about it, but, but just as a, as a reminder, our relationship with God determines the relationships that we have with others. Two other truths that are just kind of, again, foundational before we dive in. Is the, the first is, is this. Scripture doesn't call the less powerful to overthrow the more powerful, but instead to trust God. That's counterculture, right? Our culture says, no, if you're less powerful, you need to fight for your rights. You need to stand up to the man. You need to do all that. That's not the message of Scripture. Scripture doesn't call the less powerful to overthrow the more powerful, but to trust God. Um, live out your faith, trust God, and see what he does in that. The flip side of that truth is this. Scripture does call the more powerful to treat the less powerful with honor, with, with dignity, with respect, and with esteem. So if you're in a position of power, you have a responsibility from God to treat those people who um, maybe who work for you, those people who are underneath your authority, with dignity, respect, with esteem, um, with honor. If you're in that position of power as a dad, as a parent, as a boss, you've got a responsibility that comes from God that dictates the way that you relate to them. So let's take a look. Let's dive in. Verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. There's that underline, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Submission is a bad word in our culture, right? It's anti-American. Uh, one of my first years here, we did a, a sermon series called The S Word that was all about submission, um, how, how we see submission in scripture. It's a critical concept that's there for us. Making Jesus Lord of our lives, if you're a disciple of Jesus, making Jesus Lord of our lives is all about submitting ourselves to him. It's a biblical concept. You can't have the lordship of Christ without submission. Submission doesn't mean less value as a person. Submission doesn't mean relinquishing God-given leadership abilities. Submission doesn't mean that a person, when they submit, becomes a doormat for people to walk on. Submission in this context, please understand this, it's not about devaluing wives or women in general. Scripture, scripture paints a completely different picture of that. Paul elevated the role of women in the culture that existed both in Rome and in, uh, in Jewish culture where they didn't have a voice. They didn't really have um, much status at all. And Paul says, in Christ, there is no male or female. He elevated the role of women. Um, but he says... Wives, submit to your husbands. Notice that Paul didn't say, wives, obey your husbands, but instead said, submit to your husbands. He could have used the word obey. In that culture, in the culture of Rome, in the culture of, uh, of the, the Jewish culture that existed at this time, it would have been perfectly appropriate for him to say, obey your husbands. But submission and obedience are two different things. Obedience is about the action that takes place in a person's life. Submission is about the attitude that's there. It's about an issue of the heart. You can obey on the outside, 
and be angry on the inside. Someone say amen. Um, yeah, we, we do that, right? At, at work, what, wherever it is, we can, we can do what we're told and think this is the stupidest idea. I'm angry about this. I don't want to do it. Submission. Submission is about a heart that says, I'm going to trust God in this process. And I'm going to trust that God is doing his work through the people that I need to be responsible to. Why did, why did Paul use the word submit? Because submission is a choice. It's voluntary. If it's forced, it's not submission. It's slavery. Uh, this is a voluntary choice that wives can make to follow their husband's lead because of their relationship with Jesus. They, they do so because they want their husband in that role. They want their husband to have that relationship with Jesus. It's a part of that, um, that collaborative concept that we talked about when we talked about God's design for women, that they would be a helper, Scripture talks about, that they would be a collaborator that's there. Um, the word submit in the Greek is a military term that means to arrange troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In its non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. The, the submission is this choice that we make to say, I'm, I'm going to follow their lead. And that's what Paul calls wives to do in this context. One commentator said, the wife must forego the temptation to rule her husband's life using perhaps one of the many varieties of domestic blackmail. I thought that was an interesting, interesting phrase. Uh, one of the many varieties of domestic blackmail. Ladies, let, let's just be honest. You know how to play men, right? You know what to say. You know how to say it. You know what to do. You know how to do it in order to get your way. Paul says... Instead of using that kind of manipulation, submit to your husband, helping him, assisting him, encouraging him, following his leadership. And there's that phrase, as is fitting to the Lord. Doing so, choosing to submit in the context of your marriage relationship, that's an expression of your faith, not in your husband, but of your faith in God. When God's our desire, we can trust his design. True submission doesn't diminish equality at all. It doesn't mar the dignity of Jesus. How do I know that? It doesn't mar the dignity of a person. How do I know that? Because of Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus chose to submit to the will of the Father, to come to earth and go to the cross. True submission doesn't diminish equality at all. Jesus still was equal with God, still um, a part of God. Ladies, you done now? Let's jump to the husbands, right? Husbands, what's your instruction? Love your wife and don't be harsh with her. When, when Paul wrote similar instructions to the church in Ephesus, he said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's this, there's this idea of, of, of sacrifice that's critical to that marriage relationship. Um, when, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, he's not saying love your wives like you love a steak, 
a good steak, like you love a, your car or cars, or like you love football. He doesn't use the word eros, the Greek word for romantic love. Paul wasn't saying, husbands, love your wives, take her out to dinner, do, you know, do a nice candlelight dinner, uh, make her feel special. He doesn't use the, word, the Greek word storge, the word for family love. Paul's not saying, husbands, love your wives because she's a part of your family and she's got an important role in that. He doesn't use the word philos, which is the Greek word for brotherly love, for, for affectionate, for relational love. He isn't saying, husbands, love your wives and make sure that you're a good friend to her. All of those are good things to do, good ways to cultivate your love for her, men. But Paul uses the word agape, the word that describes God's love for us. He's saying, love her with an unconditional determination on your part. It's a choice. It's a posture. It's an action of servanthood in your role as husband. Love her with a sacrificial love, a love that puts her needs, her desires before your own. Love her in such a way that she feels cherished and valued, not demeaned, not demoralized. Husbands, love your wives more than you love your work. Love your wives more than you love your hobbies. Love your wife more than you love your house, more than you love your friends, more than you love your kids. Love your wife more than you love your community. Love your wife above everything else except Jesus. She has that role in your life because of your relationship with Jesus. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Don't be, don't be harsh. Um, Paul makes it clear. Don't be harsh to your wife. Don't make her bitter. Hebrews, Hebrews uh, chapter 12 talks about a root of bitterness that can sneak in and can spoil a relationship, that can foul a relationship. Husbands, don't make your wives bitter. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Husbands, when you feel like you want to quote verse 18 to your wife, submit to your husband, um, think about what you're called to do. You're called to love her with a sacrificial love as Christ loved the church. Um, gentlemen, it, it's an incredibly scary thing for your wife to submit to you because we are so fallible. No matter how good of a leader you think you are, no matter how much in tune you think you are to your family's needs, um, no matter how much you're convinced that you know what's best for your family, for your marriage, in every case, we make mistakes. We're fallible. We mess up. Do you know how scary it is to submit to a leader who's fallible? It's really, really scary. That's why I think Paul says, be a servant, serve your wives, love her with a, with a sacrificial kind of love. That's the call for every husband who's a disciple of Jesus. Um, this, this, uh, this truth that's here, uh, I've been toying with whether to tell this story or not, and I asked Deb last night if I could, so I'm going to, all right? Um, here we go. <laughs> 
Um, a few, uh, about uh, a few days before the 4th of July, our camper was up at our cottage uh, up on Crystal Lake and uh, we needed to take it off and, and empty it and then bring it back. And I wanted to move it closer to the garage than we had it set before because when our family comes for the cottage, we've got 40 or 50 people there. A little bit of space makes a big difference. So we take it off, bring it back. And Deb said, we've got the, we've got the bump out. We've got to make sure that that doesn't hit the garage. That's going to ruin the camper. Got it, dear. Um, so she takes out a tape measure and measures how far we're supposed to be. I had visual cues from where I had been and where I knew I could go. And um, uh, here's an insight into the Rubel family. We had an animated discussion, uh, all right? I think five different times I pulled the camper out and moved it back in to where I thought was right. And Deb would say, no, it's too close. You're going to bang into the garage. You can't do that. And the tension kept escalating and escalating. Deb said, when I told this story, I have to say that I was wrong um, <laughs> in this process. I wish I could say I had pictures to show, but here's what, here's what happened because this was real life. She was, she was getting more and more animated. I was getting more and more animated and, and the camper just kept going back in and out, in and out, in and out. Finally, I stopped it. I got out of the camper and I went back, didn't say anything. I just gave her a hug. And then we started to laugh because it's like, who cares about whether the camper is five inches closer to the garage or not? Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. God's going to work through that process. And when we live that out, Man, God is glorified in an incredible way. Um, let, let, me just, let me just reinforce this again. Wives, um, or verse 18 is written to wives, not to husbands. Husbands don't ever have the right to, to say to their wife, you need to submit to me, read what verse 18 says. Verse 19 is written to husbands, not to wives. Wives never have the right to say to their husbands, you're supposed to love me and not be harsh to me. Drive in your lane. Live in that. Let God speak to you there. What if your marriage has devolved into more of a roommate kind of relationship? You don't feel really a lot of love for your husband or wife anymore? Um, a, a woman went in the police station and reported that her husband was missing. And the officer that took the report said, okay, I need a description. And she said, well, he's 29. He's about 6'2". Um, he's got really a full head of dark hair. He was driving a convertible. He has a Rolex. And, and the police officers said, ma'am, um, I know your husband. He's in his 50s. He's fat. Um, he drives a minivan. And she said, I know, but who would want him back? For, <laughs> right? That reminded me of a story I heard about President Bush a number of years ago. President Bush, after he got out of office, he's traveling uh, with Secret Service with Barbara. They're out in West Texas. They have to stop and get gas. They go to this gas station. Secret Service agent gets out. The, they get out to, to stretch their legs. And the, the Secret Service agent is, um, is pumping gas. President Bush is, is speaking to him. And Barbara gets out. And, and the owner of the gas station comes out. And begins to talk to her. And their conversation gets, uh, gets real animated. They're laughing and talking. And, and finally, as the gas is, is um, finished, uh, 
She gives him a hug, hops back in the car. And um, they hop in the car and President Bush says to, to Barbara, who was that? What was that about? And she said, oh, that's a guy from high school that I went to a dance with. We, hadn't, we haven't seen each other all this time. There's kind of quietness in the car as they're riding. Finally, President Bush says, honey, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you married me? Got to be the first lady of the United States, live in the White House instead of this guy where, where you know, he owns a gas station. And Barbara just very quietly turned to him with a smile and said, George, you don't understand. If I had married him, he would have been president of the United States. <laughs> understand that when we live in the, in the design that God created, our spouse becomes so much better. They grow and blossom in that design. And that maybe there's not great stuff that's going on at home right now. But when you, when you listen to God, when you love the way that God has called you to love, God can do incredible things in both you and your spouse. Let's keep going. Uh, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Children, obey your parents. It, understand that it pleases the Lord when you're obedient. I, I, don't, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this particular thing, even though we're all, called, we're, we're all children. We all have parents, right? Um, the, the, the concept that's there in, um, in, in this letter is that when we live in our parents' household, until we move out of that children into the adult role, that we need to obey what mom and dad says, says, as long as it doesn't violate who God is and what God has called us to do. Um, this concept of obey your parents, that it's a pretty direct thing for kids. There aren't a lot of kids in here, but um, understand that that's what we're called to do. There are a lot of parents in here. And I think that there's a subtle recognition that Paul, uh, Paul writes this to the church to say to parents, parents, you've got to teach your children to obey them as well. Um, you have to teach your child to obey. Um, fathers, don't do things that would embitter or provoke your children. And let me pause just for a second. That word that's there, fathers, it's translated fathers, it's translated appropriately, but that word can also mean mothers as well. So it's really kind of saying, parents, mom and dad, don't, don't drive your kids crazy. Don't cause them to, to be embittered. That word embitter or provoke, depending on which translation you're look like, looking at, um, it really means to nag on an ongoing basis. It's like, don't harp at them. Don't, don't, don't be chasing them all the time. Um, I, on Tuesdays, we do a, a North Point Plus podcast, and I'm going to talk about this more on the podcast. I've already decided I can't spend as much time there as I want to right now. But let me give you 11 things that will embitter a child. Uh, uh, 11 things that can embitter, the uh, embitter a child. The first is constant criticism. When a, when, a, when a dad especially constantly criticizes their kids, it's going to cause this bitterness to grow in them. 
uh, a lack of encouragement and praise. Second thing, con- consistent comparisons to their siblings, to their friends, to when you were a kid, that, that comparison, that will cause a, a, an embittered heart in the lives of your children. Um, third thing, being characterized by your harshness and your short temper with them. Moms and dads, if, if any time that you interact with your kids, you find that you're yelling at them constantly, that's going to cause this sense of frustration, the sense of, of bitterness that's there. Um, number four, an unwillingness to hear their side of the story. One of the most frustrating things for a child as they're growing up is to be accused of something that they didn't do and not have a chance to be able to tell their side of the story. One of the most frustrating things for a kid as they're growing up is for dad to say one thing and mom to say something else and to not know who they're supposed to obey because those two things are in conflict with each other. I told you the first thing that when you come home from school is to do X, Y, Z. And mom says, no, as soon as you come in the door, you need to do this. Unless they have a way to be able to have that conversation with you, it's going to cause this sense of bitterness in them. Uh, Number five, an unwillingness to admit your mistakes or to apologize to your kids when you mess up. Number six, a lack of physical affection will cause a bitterness in your child, a distance that doesn't need to be there. Um, that's, that's hugging your kids even when they're old. It's maybe holding hands with them when they're little, horsey rides, you know, riding piggyback, all those kinds of things. Um, an absence of telling them how much you love them is another thing that will cause them to be embittered. If you don't communicate that with them, um, a lack of support, your physical presence at their games, at their activities, those kinds of things, an unwillingness to allow them to fail and to help them learn from their failure. One of the things that will cause bitterness in your child is to never experience failure. You've got to let them do that. Even as a parent, as much as you don't want that to happen, you've got to let them fail. You've got to let them understand the consequences of their failure, and you've got to help them work through that. Um, Number 10, um, a lack of commitment to your spouse, husbands to wives, wives to husbands. If they don't see love modeled in your home, that's going to cause this churn, this bitterness in, in the life of your child. And the last thing, number 11, is a lack of consistency in you to live out what you believe is true, what you say is true. When you say this matters and you don't do it, it causes this disconnect, this struggle, this, um, this embitteredness in the life of your child. Um, when, our, when our kids were young, we have six kids. Um, they're all old now. But when they were young, I, I remember somebody... Uh, talking to me about something, and it really, really convicted me. They said, you know, when, you're, when your child comes and asks you for something, how do you respond? Why, why not ask yourself the question, is there a compelling reason why I can't say yes? Because as a parent, I don't know if this is true for you guys, but it was true for me. You know, dealing with stuff all day, come home, and Kid would say, can I turn on the TV? No, no, don't turn on the TV. Can I go outside and play? No, nah, don't go outside and play. Uh, can, I, can I do X, Y, Z? You know, can I go to this person's house or whatever? My default answer was to just say no. And I was really convicted when they said, is there a compelling reason why you can't say yes? 
So if you've got little guys at home, I would, I, I would ask you that question. When they come with a question, is there, is there a compelling reason, a good reason, why you can't say yes to them? That will develop this relationship, a love relationship, a relationship of trust uh, between the two of you. Um, this whole idea of not making your child bitter creates a great question for you and your spouse to talk about. Don't, make, don't embitter your child. Here's, the, here's what I want you to talk about. If God parented you the way that you parent, would you get discouraged? If God treated you the way that you treat your kids, would, would that discourage you? Would that make you bitter? Some of you are discouraged, and God feels very distant from you because your vision of God is based on the way that you parent your kids. You see God in you rather than allowing yourself to see who God is and let that drive how you parent. Um, um, oh, goodness. So many things I want to say. Um, I, I would just say this. Recognize as a parent that there are phases of parenting. The way that you parent a two-year-old is not the way that you parent a 10-year-old. The way that you parent a 10-year-old is not the way that you parent a 15-year-old. The way that you parent a 15-year-old is not the way that you parent an 18-year-old. We'll talk about that more on Tuesday in North Point Plus as well. Um, but understand how important it is as a parent to understand where your child is and to parent them appropriately. One of the great tools that we have down in the children's wing um, on, on a board that's there is um, developmental issues for your kids, things that they're working through, that they're struggling with at every age. And you can go down there, and if you've got a 14-year-old, you can pull off the 14-year-old card, take it home, and, and utilize that. If you've got a three-year-old, same kind of thing. Use those tools, but don't assume because you have it all figured out when you're when your child is four or five, that you're going to have it all figured out when they're nine or 10 or 14 or 15. Um, parents can create stability, can, can create healthy self-esteem or paralyzing doubt. Parents can create stability or insecurity. They can create anger or joy. They can create courage or discouragement. They can create a treasured relationship or despise relationship. And don't miss this, even if your kids are out of the house years ago, it's never too late to start fresh, to go back to your, to, to your ch child or your children, and apologize for the mistakes that you made in the past, and start, start fresh to try and rebuild that relationship. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Let me, let me just pause there for a second and, and say, uh, slavery in the first century was in Rome was different than the slavery that we experienced in the United States um, from the inception of our country up until 1860. Um, in that, in Rome, um, slaves were still viewed as possessions, but they were seen as people. They were not, um, they were not a partial person or a, just a piece of property that could be just disposed of. They, they had value in the first century. So when, when, when Paul writes to the church in Colossae and says, slaves obey your masters, it's a little bit different picture than what we might think of in the U.S. But the principles still apply to us. We don't have slavery in our world today, in, in our culture today, 
But what I'd like to do is just change that, that relationship that we're looking at because I think the principles are true and just put that into your work environment. And so, uh, and so let, me, um, let me just, let, let's read through these verses, but I'm going to change the words a little bit, all right? Employees, obey your bosses in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for your boss, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Bosses, provide your employees with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a boss in heaven. Um, don't miss this. There should be no better workers in your workplace than followers of Jesus. There should be no better workers in your workplace than followers of Jesus. There should be no better employers in your workplace than followers of Jesus. What, what does Paul ask of you to do as a disciple of Jesus? He says, work, work hard, work, give your whole heart to your work, work knowing that you're really working for Jesus, for God, not for your boss. Have the right kind of perspective that when you come to work, you're there. You're given everything to help make your company, your business, whatever it is, as effective as possible. Work knowing that Jesus is watching. Your work ethic shouldn't change if, you, if less people are in the office, if your boss isn't there. You know what that looks like, right? When the boss comes in and everybody sits up and says, oh, gets to work as fast as they can. Not so for us as followers of Jesus. We should be diligent in our work. Um, I, I think I, I, as I was processing these verses, I thought, man, this is especially true in a season where so many people are working remotely. It's really, really easy if you're working from home to slack, to not be diligent, to get distracted, and to realize the day's gone by and you haven't really done much. Paul says, you guys are followers of Jesus. You can't do that. You can't live that way. You're working as a representative. You're working to please Jesus. And he says, there is a reward that will come to you eternally because of how you work in your job. Think about that. It's not just about the paycheck. God will reward us. He will give us an inheritance, Paul says, based on the way that we work. Um, we, we need a revolution in this area. I'm convinced. Your employer should be so impressed by the work you do, by the volume of work that you do, that they say, you know what we need here? You know what we really need in this company? We need more followers of Jesus. Because they work, they work their tails off. They work honestly. They, they give everything they can. We've got to hire more Christians. That's not the case, though. And we need to change it. Um, 
people, people often ask, you know, they'll ask me as, as, a, um, as a leader, as a pastor, they'll say, oh, do we have a directory at the church of what jobs people have? Because, man, I'd really like to hire somebody from the church to be my plumber, to be my realtor, to, to, to uh, be my carpenter, whatever it is. We haven't done that, and we won't do that, because way too often Christian workers are not the best workers and don't treat people fairly. Um, they don't work as unto the Lord. Let that not be true of you. Um, I have a friend who in their business contracted with another business whose highest level of ownership championed their, their commitment to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, the name of their company um, utilized a symbol of Christianity that, that was a part of their byline, their logo, their, their stuff. And they cheated my friend and his business out of $500,000. Half million dollar deal went bad. That will ultimately probably cost my friend his job and cost that company that he works for their business. They will probably go out of business because of that. That ought not be. It ought not be. It doesn't matter if you work on the line at GM, if you're a clerk at Speedway, if you're administrative, if you work in IT, if you're a mid-level manager, it ought not be. As followers of Jesus, there's an eternal reward at stake for what we bring to our work. Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart. It's the Lord Christ that you're serving. Six pieces of instruction for us. Relationships that, that are transformed by God's word living in us. What do those relationships look like? Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't embitter your children. Don't make them bitter. Employees, obey your bosses. Work hard even when nobody's watching. Bosses, treat your employees fairly. Pay them well. Take care of them. These verses, this instruction matters. What happens in your home matters. What happens in your marriage matters. What happens in your parenting matters. What happens at work matters. Because Jesus is living inside us. His word takes root and changes us. That's the call that we have to transformed relationships. Let's pray. God, um, wow. I, there's so much in those six sets of instruction for each of us to internalize, to live out. God, we know that we can't just do it by sheer will. We know that we do have to make choices, but, but God, we ask you, we invite your spirit to convict us, to prod us, to, to encourage us to live the way that you've called us to live. God, let your word dive into our hearts. Let it take root. Let it change us so that all those relationships can change as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.